The United Nations General Assembly, which helped to create the State of Israel, now elects her a member nation. Assembly President Abbott announces... ...formally declare Israel admitted to membership in the United Nations. Although Britain abstained from voting, congratulations are showered on Israel's Foreign Minister Moshe Sharet from all the delegates. The young republic, born of war, now joins the Council of Peace. The blue and white star of David is added to the flags of the 58 other member states. Simultaneously with her admission to UNO, Tel Aviv, capital of Israel, celebrates the first anniversary of the state's independence. Crowds are so big that a giant parade has to be cancelled. In synagogues throughout the land, thousands of worshippers attend Thanksgiving services. The day is declared an official holiday, and in Jerusalem, parades take place as scheduled. The milling throngs keep their good spirits despite the crush. They salute the men and women who helped build a new democratic state. It's 102 years since Lord Balfour declared the Jews should have their own homeland. Today's guest is a truly remarkable man, Lord Leslie Turnberg, a man whose life has excelled in medicine and now in the upper chamber of British politics. He's also applied his considerable intellect to 20th century Jewish and Israeli history, I promise you a wide-ranging discussion. Born in 1934 in Manchester, Leslie's parents came from Poland and Romania. He was the first doctor in the family. Leslie was president of the Royal College of Physicians after a distinguished medical career in both Manchester and London. He became a Knight of the Realm in 1994 and speaks in the House of Lords on many a medical issue and as a growing authority on Israel and the Middle East. He's a troubled Labour peer. This is a turning point in the campaign. There'll be no looking back. There'll be no turning back. Onwards to the freedom for the Palestinian people. Uh, John Atkinson Hobson's uh, printed in 2011, which Jeremy Corbyn very helpfully added a foreword to in a book about imperialism blaming basically the First and Second World Wars on the single and peculiar race of the Jews, which Jeremy Corbyn called a brilliant book and extremely controversial. It's absolutely clear that anyone who lords that book, which is so viciously anti-Semitic, very much like the Protocols of Zion, and it just goes along the same route, I'm surprised Corbyn hasn't lauded the Protocols of Zion, but it's a very good sign, if you needed it, that he is anti-Semitic. Through charitable work in memory of his late son Daniel, tragically killed in a plane crash aged just 37, Leslie and his wife Edna have enabled 240 biomedical researchers the chance of foreign exchange visits to further their research experience and learn new techniques... And it's simple. It just aims to develop scientific collaboration and friendships between the UK and the Middle East. Daniel was a bright young doctor and a medical researcher with a huge future. You can find out more about Leslie and Edna's charity by searching for the Academy of Medical Sciences. To mark the centenary, Leslie wrote Beyond the Balfour Declaration, the 100-year quest for Israeli-Palestinian peace. And I started by asking him, why he decided to write about the Balfour Declaration in the first place. I hadn't thought of writing a book, but I knew the centenary was coming up, and I thought I ought to find out a bit more about Balfour. So I started reading, and the more I read, the more I realised I didn't know. And I thought, if I don't know, maybe others don't either. So I dug into a little. The declaration itself is fairly ambiguous. It uh, leaves open all sorts of questions. Balfour himself thought that, uh, first of all, Palestine didn't have all that many indigenous people there, so it would be easy to put the Jews there. And he thought that in due course, Arabs and Jews would get on very well together, so there wouldn't be a problem. So he, he really minimized the potential for problems. But he always knew, even though he didn't say it, Palestine would become a Jewish state. Weizmann and he agreed that it would be a Jewish state, but they would never, ever say that. They didn't want to frighten the horses, so they kept rather quiet about statehood. 
Hello. I'm Edna Hello, Edna. Nice to meet you. I don't need to put this on pause. How are you? Nice to meet you, Edna. Thank you. I'm Johnny. Your name? Johnny Gould. Okay, love. It won't be that long. Ah. <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, where were, where we? were we? Okay, don't mention the J word, um, which is where we were. Yes, the Jewish state word. It seemed at the time, Balfour himself said that the Arabs wouldn't begrudge this small notch of land. That was a, a statement he made. Well, they've been begrudging it ever since, uh, unfortunately. Winston Churchill knew the Mohammedans, as he might have referred to them from time to time, a little bit better, and he knew that um, they wouldn't take kindly to this. How much of an involvement did Churchill have around the Balfour Declaration and discussions with uh, Balfour? They were, of course, contemporaries. They were. I don't think Churchill was directly involved at the time of Balfour. He became involved later. In fact, he denied he had been involved with Balfour. Uh, but he, he was very supportive uh, in the longer run and became quite friendly with Weizmann and he himself was very supportive during the time when the Arabs in Palestine were beginning to lobby the British Parliament to uh, uh, stop the Balfour Declaration, to rescind it and to stop land purchase and stop immigration of Jews uh, and Churchill turned them away. He was uh, quite strong on trying to protect the idea of a Jewish homeland and a commitment. And in Parliament, he uh, spoke about that quite strongly, uh, even though the House of Lords at the time had passed a, an amendment, a resolution, to rescind the Balfour Declaration. But when it came to the Commons, Churchill, with a barnstorming speech turned it round. Sir Winston Churchill's son, Mr. Randolph Churchill, comes to Israel for a ceremony in honour of his father. Near Haifa, the foundation stone is being laid for the Winston Churchill Technion Auditorium, a new university project. Mr. and Mrs. Churchill are warmly received by their Israeli audience. This ceremony is in tribute to the man who gave Israel much-needed support in the first difficult years. It's actually the recent criticism, the fashion, as you called it, to criticise the Balfour Declaration, those sort of same uh, frequencies of rescinding, getting rid of, what a terrible historical document it was, what a disaster, what even a Nakba it was, perhaps on the other side of the argument it might be. But that was actually the reason why you wrote the book, wasn't it? Yes, I wanted to be sure that people who didn't know much about what was going on in the Middle East, who yet pontificated and uh, criticised what had gone on, uh, hadn't understood, as, as well as they might, the reasons why the British government, it wasn't just Balfour, it was the whole of the British government, and the French government, and the Italian government, and even the Pope, supported the idea of a home for the Jews in Palestine. They weren't talking about statehood, but they were talking about a place where the Jews could go and called home. And uh, I wanted to be sure that people understood that that was the basis of the Balfour Declaration. And whatever else came out, uh, the need to protect the indigenous population, need to ensure the civil and religious rights of the people who were living there, that was part of it. But equally, if not more so, a home for the Jews was the prime purpose. Now, timing is everything. Of course, the centenary coincided with the Foreign Secretary being Boris Johnson, who really upheld the reputation of the Balfour Declaration. He said some very big words about uh, the British relationship with Israel, a source of pride that he said it was at the time, which, of course, is in stark contrast, had the Foreign Secretary been from the other party, uh, Emily Thornbury, Lady Nuji would have had a, a word the other way. So timing again is everything. Most British governments for the last 20 years, including Labour, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Cameron, Mrs May, have all been favourably disposed towards Israel, uh, which has been fortunate. 
that doesn't mean to say it couldn't change, and I suspect the current Labour leadership would have a different relationship with Israel. They can't deny its existence much as they would like to, but it is a UN member, uh, UN member state, and has international recognition. So they're not going to be able to do much about that, but that doesn't mean they won't criticize Israel and perhaps encourage votes in the UN, which would not be terribly helpful to Israel. Jeremy Corbyn once branded the Balfour Declaration, which gave the Jewish people a right to a home in Israel, the ultimate act of total dishonesty. Once again, one of these ugly stories which have come out of his uh, draw in 2012 this time before he was leader. Yes, well, uh, he, he wouldn't have been alone in saying that sort of thing, but it does demonstrate, firstly, his anti-Semitism, he does, and, and for, secondly, his ignorance. He doesn't recognise it as anti-Semitism, but it is. Uh, and his ignorance of what the Balfour Declaration was and is was very clear. He didn't seem to realise that it was firstly in response by the British government to the persecution of the Jews and the pogroms that were going on in Eastern Europe and Russia. And that was one of the stimuli. The other was, of course, self-interest in British government during the First World War, 1917, when they needed allies in Palestine and the Jews were supportive, very supportive, and at the same time the Arabs of Palestine were tending to side with the Turks rather than with the Allies. And uh, that being so, it was in their self-interest to have a friendly uh, force within Palestine. After that, of course, we do know that the Balfour Declaration was not a treaty. It had no legal basis. It was simply a statement of favourable disposition towards the Jews. If Corbyn wants to criticise and wants to lay blame, he'd then have to go to the legal basis of the formation following Balfour, which happened at the League of Nations in 1922, published in 1923, when 51 nations, all of them uniformly, voted in favour of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Do you think it ever crosses his mind that his revisionism, as uh, both you and I would uh, call it, actually emboldens a state of Israel, gives it more purpose, and creates more of a defence against the world? Let's face it, in Israel, it's America that they take notice of, and whatever happens in America is very important. So they're very fearful of what the next president will bring. They don't really bother too much about what happens in Britain or even in Europe. They reckon Britain is, has never been entirely comfortable with the idea of an Israel or a Jewish state. So they get on. They, it produces Netanyahu's uh, obvious aggressive attitude towards the rest of the world and he just gets on with his security arrangements. At some point mm. the Jewish world will have to deal with a democratic American president who has an ear to Palestine. Oh indeed I think uh, Israel really does need to take much more notice of what the rest of the world says. Uh, I just think that they don't at the moment or at least suggest that they don't, but they do need, and they do need all the allies they're going to get in the future. Netanyahu is spreading his wings, he's going to China, he's going to Africa, going to other Arab states, he's trying to gain friends wherever he can, but if he can't keep America on board, we're in big trouble. Stories keep coming out about him as a backbencher, and of course, uh, John Atkinson Hobson's reprint from 1902 uh, printed in 2011, which Jeremy Corbyn very helpfully added a foreword to, in a book about imperialism, blaming basically the First and Second World Wars on the single and peculiar race of the Jews, which Jeremy Corbyn called a brilliant book and extremely controversial. Certainly controversial. But if you needed any evidence that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, there it is. It's absolutely clear that anyone who lords that book, which is so 
viciously anti-Semitic, very much like the Protocols of Zion, uh, and it just goes along the same route. I'm surprised Corbyn hasn't lauded the Protocols of Zion, but it's a very good sign, if you needed it, that he is anti-Semitic. Now, before the 20th century, there was no such identity as Palestinian. There were Arabs living in the Levant. You've chosen to use the word Palestinian in the title. Did you ponder this definition and how to use it? Even the word Palestine before the 14th of May 1948 is not Palestine in the way that revisionists want us to say, including people like George Galloway. (laughs) Yes. The land existed, but it was part of southern Syria, and Palestinia was what the Romans called it uh, as part of southern Syria. It was where the Philistines had been. So it did have some identity, but it never had any borders. It didn't have any separation from Syria or from what became Jordan. Jordan didn't exist either. But it became Palestinian as soon as the Brits set up their mandate and the French set up their mandate. Syria in the north for France, Palestine, Mesopotamia, Palestine and Jordan for the Brits. So that in 1922, the mandates were were produced by the League of Nations, confirmed 1923, and that was when Palestine started existing and where the Palestinian people who are living in that area suddenly recognised that they had a nation, a nationality, and they became a Palestinian nation, Palestinians. And that was when they first separated themselves off from the Syrian. They developed a Palestinian nationalism separate from Arab nationalism, which they'd up till then uh, pursued with the Arabs in Syria. But as soon as the French took over Syria, they had nowhere to go. So they didn't like the French. They hated the French even more than the Brits. And they then decided to have a Palestinian separate nationalism. So here we have a tinderbox of a war, a conflict, which literally can spill over at any time. It happened last night. Again, rockets Mm. flying into Tel Aviv, apparently homemade, whatever that means. No, they weren't. Um, So I want to ask you, if you took one of Theodor Herzl or Chaim Weizmann or Arthur Balfour out of the equation, even one of them, two of them, three of them, would we still have a state of Israel, or would someone else have stepped up to the plate, given the world's sympathy with the plight of Jews after the Holocaust, and with the overwhelming organizational uh, movement of Zionism, which had started in the 19th century? Uh, Who knows? How the state of Israel came about, many people regard it as being the result of the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration itself was predominantly the result of the lobbying by Chaim Weizmann. Other people think Balfour wasn't such a big deal anyway, and it was the revulsion felt by the world population after the Holocaust that said, we've got to do something for the Jews, and no one wanted the refugees coming out of, uh, the residual Jews coming out of Germany and Poland. Such is the plight of once glorious Europe, and such are the atrocities against which we are in arms. It is upon this foundation that Hitler, with his tattered lackey Mussolini at his tail, and Admiral Dahlow frisking at his side, pretends to build out of hatred, appetite, and racial assertion, a new order for Europe. Never did so mocking a fantasy obsess the mind of mortal man. We cannot tell what the course of this fell war will be as it spreads remorseless to ever wider regions. We know it will be hard. We expect it will be long. We cannot predict or measure its episodes or its tribulations. But one thing is certain. One thing is sure. 
one thing stands out stark and undeniable, massive and unassailable for all the world to see. It will not be by German hands that the structure of Europe will be rebuilt or the union of the European family achieved. So Palestine became uh, a valuable asset. So people think those were the two important things. But of course they're all built on foundations going back, as you suggest, for probably a hundred years as uh, Zionism evolved with a number of major figures, Herzling especially. But I believe that the Balfour Declaration was important, the Holocaust was important, Weizmann was important, but equally important, I believe, was the mandate period in the 1920s and 30s. That was the time when the state could have been lost completely. The Jews were outnumbered 10 to 1 by the Arabs, who were belligerent and wanted to get rid of them. The British government was beginning to backslide. It was beginning to have regrets that it had got involved in this turmoil in the Middle East. It was uh, having votes in Parliament trying to stop the Balfour Declaration. That was before the League of Nations approved it. And even afterwards, they were putting a ban on immigration. They were putting a ban on land purchase. And yet, and yet, there were giants during that time who ensured that the state idea continued. And in British government, they were fortunate to have a Churchill uh, who uh, promoted the cause and uh, others in Parliament, there were several others at that time, a man called Snell, who was very important. And of course, there were many on the ground who, in, in Palestine who were really fighting for everything that they got. People like Jabotinsky, Alozarov, Rutenberg, they were great heroes. And that period that allowed the survival of the Zionist dream to continue was vitally important. Other names could have formed the lexicon, such as the sort of wide suffering, actually, as well as the wide condition of being Jewish around the world. You're asking whether others could have done the same job as uh, Herzl and Weizmann and their crew. I'm not entirely sure. It needed great leadership, A, to recognize that talking amongst themselves, the Jews were not going to get anywhere. There were lots of Jews who were saying, we've really got to have a homeland, we've really got to go back to Palestine, we've really got to go back to our roots. But it was that Herzl was the, one of the first people to recognize that he had to gain world opinion from leaders, in uh, political leaders around the world. Uh, he tried hard but didn't succeed, of course, but he did get the Jews together to think in terms of statehood and to think in terms of convincing world leaders. And Weizmann was the consummate diplomat who could convince world leaders, particularly in the UK. And Nahum Sokolov, his right-hand man, who deserves much more credit than he ever gets, was the one that persuaded the French during the beginning of the First World War, and the Italians, and even the Pope. He, he was the one that spoke to the Pope, and the Pope gave him his good wishes. So there were giants of men who were absolutely brilliant, highly intellectual. Sokolov uh, deserves a lot of credit that he doesn't get, because he was a rather modest man. But he could speak at least a dozen languages very easily and freely, uh, was highly intelligent, wrote newspaper articles and books. He deserves more credit. Next time I go down Rechov Sokolov, yes. I will ponder what yes. you've just said. Yes. Now, the problem with peace between Israel and Palestine is that it can be so easily blown off course by a single event, an assassination, a shocking attack, a diplomatic incident, something in the UN, which rather highlights the fact that the positions between the two peoples are so entrenched mm. that peace actually might never be possible, maybe just containment? 
Yes, uh, it is gloomy, uh, and the history of uh, Israel has uh, had ups and downs. There have been occasions when we seem to have been almost there, although many people think we were nowhere near, mm. but people, some people thought we were almost there, and then it was all dashed because, as you say, there was a, an intifada or an assassination or something cropped up that interfered, uh, that stopped everyone dead. And now we're in a position where it does seem that we are in an intractable position. However, I'm not convinced that uh, it is intractable. I think we have intractable leaders in uh, Israel and in the PLO, uh, in the Palestinian Authority, rather. And I think that... Uh, until they go, or unless they go, uh, we're not going to get terribly far. The distance between them is not enormous. The idea of what could be achieved in a two-state solution, incidentally, I don't think anything other than a two-state solution is possible. I don't think a one-state solution is acceptable to either side. Well, it's acceptable to the Arab side, the Palestinian side, but not to the Israeli side. I think I don't think a confederation or federation idea is viable. I think a two-state solution is the only possible endpoint that we might reach where peace could be achieved. Otherwise, we just manage what we're doing, which is not satisfactory. And the two-state solution depends on both Israel and the Palestinians accepting compromises. We always talk about compromises. And uh, what those compromises would include have been well known, have been part of peace plans for the last, I don't know, 50 years. Uh, and they were on the table in the Clinton plans and at Camp David. And everyone knows what they are, but both, neither side are willing to accept them. There's solutions to all of them. So to develop that, the uh, former head of Shin Bet, Yaakov Perry, uh, recently talked of divorce between Israel and Palestine, that peace is a mere attempt to stop fighting, and it's more really a new age without the threat of huge destruction, as we've seen with Egypt. We are at peace with Egypt, uh, but, you know, there are diplomatic links, and they break down from time to time. Uh, I'm not saying it's an uneasy peace, but it's not kind of peace that you have between, uh, you know, Yorkshire and Lancashire, is it? Well, that's been going a long time. Not sure it's so peaceful. Uh, but the yes, peace with Egypt has stood for many, many years, and the lack of war is a vitally important achievement and uh, getting to a state where uh, there isn't a war is invaluable. We're not at war with the Palestinians, certainly not in the West Bank. And the problem there is, if you compare it with the peace with Egypt, Egypt had a country of its own, a state, uh, and it's easy to make peace with a state. It's difficult to make peace with a people that don't have a state as yet. One really needs to think in terms of what the Palestinians would gain from having statehood that they don't have now. It is quite tricky because they could declare themselves a state. Who would recognise it? And there's another matter. And they do have a sort of government, not terribly effective, and they could develop the machinery of statehood, but it suits the leadership to maintain this sort of half statehood, half nationhood, half freedom, because it gains them all sorts of advantages in terms of support from the UN. So they are in a difficult position. The the other point, of course, is what sort of state would they get if they did have a state of their own? A small landlocked state with a bit in Gaza. It's not a terribly attractive proposition. Uh, it may be all they'll ever get. On the face of it, it doesn't look like 
a great deal for them. Statehood stroke victimhood is where we are at the moment. Um, Tell us a little bit about the relaxed devil-may-care Earl of Balfour, Prime Minister for three years at the turn of the last century, but whose place in history is absolutely assured. Ah, Well, he he wasn't devil-may-care. He was a bachelor, certainly, never got married, but he had a woman, that a married woman mistress that he had for a long time. But he was a he was certainly debonair. He was very tall, very thin. Always liked to have uh, a sleep in the afternoon. Uh, even as a schoolboy, he used to rest. And he uh, he said that uh, nothing much matters, and very few things matter at all. So he was very laid back in a way. Um, Churchill described him in Parliament when he would do down anyone who argued with him in a very gentlemanly way. He was rather like a large white cat gently walking across a muddy field. (laughs) Uh, And he was like that. Uh, He uh, was a philosopher. He wrote books on philosophy and doubt. He, He had a wide circle of good friends and he had country country house, he had lots of country weekends, he enjoyed life, and he was very friendly with, became very friendly with Chaim Weizmann. But he, he became Prime Minister for about three or four years, but he wasn't very successful in that, and he was out. In fact, he lost his seat in the election next time round uh, in Manchester. And he, uh, he eventually came back into Parliament, and he became the grand old man of Parliament, went into the House of Lords. And from that position, he, when he wasn't in office, in any government office, he was able to help the, uh, the Zionists, both at uh, San Remo and where the San Remo Conference held, and at the League of Nations. So he continued to support the Zionists. But he was a very effete laid-back sort of person. He used to slink on the seats in Parliament, laying right back. He, his, his, <laughs> he was made Minister for, for Ireland, Secretary of State for Ireland, and no one could understand why he'd been given this position, because he was not very active in Parliament, hardly attending. But then he was, his, it was realised that his uncle was the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, whose real name was Robert Cecil. And when Bob's your uncle, anything can happen. That's where the expression Bob's your uncle came from. Robert Cecil was his uncle. Right. And he, uh, he became, he, he went into Parliament, in the, he went into office in that position and then worked his way up and became Prime Minister. So you can achieve things when you're laid back. And if your uncle's Bob. Yes. Um, now, what he did for the Jews was the thing he was most proud of, as he told his niece on his deathbed, Amen, rest in peace. He did. He did, yes. He, uh, his niece wrote a biography of him, a two-volume biography, and she also was a very strong Zionist. She became very friendly with Chaim Weizmann, in fact. Uh, but she wrote about Balfour on his deathbed who, when he said that the thing he was most proud of was what he had done for the Jews. Now, you quote the late Richard Crossman, former chairman of the Labour Party and MP in Coventry. Violent partisanship of public opinion formed upon second-hand judgment and the irresponsibility of those who find it easy to make up their minds far away from the scene of the action. Ironic, because... Um, his forthright Zionism and anti-communism was quite a column of belief in the Labour Party at the time, Dick Crossman, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes, the Labour Party at that time were quite supportive of the Zionist cause. And indeed, over many, many years they have been. Uh, it's only recently that we've had a big problem with them. Richard Crossman was a great man. He, he was on the Anglo-American Commission after the war, 1945, 6, 7, that examined what was going on in Palestine and in Central Europe. 
looking at the refugees. And he was appalled at the way the refugees were held after the war in camps. And they immediately recommended 100,000 refugees should be sent straight to Palestine, as indeed did the Americans. The Americans were pushing hard for it. But the British government at the time was Attlee, Clement Attlee. He and uh, Ernest Bevin didn't like that and uh, pushed it down and didn't allow it. So that Labour government weren't very helpful. But uh, he, Crossman, was uh, very supportive. All those comments that uh, I mentioned about people expressing opinions without knowing the facts, uh, as true now as it ever was. It's like the uh, mission statement of Twitter, isn't it? Anyone who signs up and tweets, that's kind of what you have to do, unfortunately. It's quite okay to quote uh, Richard Crossman because it was he who coined, the civil service is profoundly deferential. Yes, minister. No, minister. If you wish it, minister. Which spawned one of the great comedy shows of the 1980s, didn't it, of course? Now, you told me over dinner the other week that writing a book where there is already a rich library on the subject matter is a bit of a challenge. So well done on the Balfour book. But this time, there's a gap in the writings on pre-Second World War Zionism in the decade leading up to the war. That's an ambition you have now to write another. Yes, and it's about the mandate years, 1919 to 1939, that 20-year period, when, as I said earlier, it was touch and go whether the Zionists were going to get realization of their dream that uh, a Jewish home was threatened and it was threatened by the Arabs uh, in Palestine who didn't like this influx of foreigners taking over their land buying the land and uh, very not unreasonably they were incensed by this rather aggressive group of middle Europeans uh, doing very well uh, in their land And the British government were beginning to recognise that maybe this wasn't such a good thing. Lloyd George, who'd been Prime Minister at the time of the Balfour Declaration, was saying that we've made a big mistake. We should never have done it, he wrote. The Zionists themselves were beginning to lose a bit of heart as the Brits curtailed immigration, reduced the ability to purchase land intermittently and every so often they would put a ban on and every so often Weizmann would be wheeled out to defend the case and every so often Churchill would rise to it (laughs) and they would get through Um, and uh, there were all these white papers and commissioned reports after riots in the 1920s, 1921, 23, 29, and later there were serious riots, a lot of people killed, and the the Brits sent out commissions to look at what was going on, and although it was the Arabs who attacked and killed, predominantly, not entirely, but predominantly, Each of the commissions came up with the idea that the reason why they attacked was because they didn't want these Jews coming in. So if we stopped the Jews coming, that would be a very good idea. Uh, Every time that this happened, there was fear amongst the Zionists, but eventually they managed to push it back. And so they carried on. So that period of time, how did they manage to keep the flame alive? Who was it? that was involved in ensuring that it didn't fail. There are books on it, some very good books, that cover the same period, but they don't attack it in the same way as I am from the point of view of why it was important in the overall Mm. picture of the survival of the Zionists. So, you were born in Manchester, as we've probably worked out from the uh, the light Lancastrian lilt there, if you don't mind me saying so. not in the least. You're a first-generation Briton. Your parents were Romanian on one side, Polish on the other. Your career in medicine, in particular gastroenterology, was spent in both London and Manchester and uh, quite distinguished, if I'm allowed to say so, sir. You you may, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Delighted. No, I was an academic. I was professor of medicine in Manchester. Um, Having been, you know, I was the first person in my whole family to ever go to university 
and to get a university education. I was the first person to become a doctor, a professional, in my family. It was uh, of middle European origin, but my grandparents who came across were not the intellectual types that you hear of coming from Germany or... Maresfield Gardens. Maresfield Gardens. No, they were uh, poor tailors. So it wasn't an intellectual family. My father, they were clever, but they hadn't had an education. So I, being an only child, they thought I ought to have an education, and that's <laughs> what happened. So I went into medicine more, more by chance than by design. I, I thought I would become a chemist, a pharmacist like chemist shop round the corner. I thought that looked good. Uh, but then a friend of mine said, I'm going to go into medicine. I'm going to try and go to medical school. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I applied for medicine. I got in. He didn't. <laughs> but uh, so I see the chemist now around the corner. I don't know what he is. <laughs> I don't know what happened to him. And uh, I then decided to stay in hospital rather than into general practice. When I graduated in 1957, I met a, a GP in in Shul. And he said, oh, you better go into general practice because you can't get on in medicine as a Jew in the hospitals. Hospitals in those days, the main teaching hospitals, didn't have Jews. So I thought, well, maybe. But I enjoyed working in hospitals, so I stayed and carried on all the various junior grades. And I worked in hospitals in Manchester, in the Jewish Hospital, the Northern Hospital, and Ancoats Hospital were my first hospitals. Right. Small hospitals that all closed down not long after I left. I was the kiss of death for these <laughs> hospitals. But then I did get on as a trainee at the Manchester Royal Infirmary, the main teaching hospital. And, uh, and then I carried on. So this idea that there weren't many Jews in yeah. hospitals, yeah. Um, was that just because um, Jews were slowly but surely engaging in academia and becoming qualified enough? I mean, was it racism or was it just that, you know, the country was English? I th whatever. You couldn't join a golf club. Right. Uh, you, right. Couldn't, okay. you couldn't get into a certain schools. You couldn't get into teaching hospital practice. Manchester Royal Infirmary didn't have any recognise Jews as consultants. University College Hospital, where I went to work later as a registrar, didn't have any Jews on the staff. Now you can't get into UCH without being Jewish. <laughs> because uh, So in those days it was quite different. Yeah, yeah. But it, during the 60s, when I trained, it changed. So you could... Uh, it, it, that's when it changed. So I was fortunate to be there at the right moment. And then I went up an academic ladder, became a professor, became dean of the medical school. And then 1992, I came to London as president of the Royal College of Physicians for five years. And we stayed in London ever since. And it was the Royal College of Physicians which um, you, you really reorganized in many ways. You split off certain disciplines in other ways. That's a beautiful building in Regent's Park. Oh, yes. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a swift architectural switch from what's there, let me tell you. But as a fan of brutalism, I often take photos of it and look at it. Was it yours? Well, Dennis Lasden designed it in 1963 or so. The story is the College of Physicians was in uh, Trafalgar Square right. in uh, what's now Canada House. And uh, the then president, also a Manchester man actually, Robert Platt, took Dennis Lasden in and said, will you build us a building like that, pointing to the National Gallery? And he oh, says, right. no, I don't do that. And he says, good, you're on. <laughs> and he then designed this modern structure, which theoretically is supposed to fit in with the Regency terraces around it. Right. Well, that's a, yeah. a slight uh, a yeah. leap of the imagination. Yeah. Listen, being from Birmingham, I love that kind of concrete. I really do. Well, they've covered it. That's one of Lasden's few buildings that's covered in tiles. Right. Most of it is a concrete. Yes. But I lived in that for five years, in that building at the top. Very nice. Well, Very nice. Um, now, you were knighted in 1994 and became a member of the House of Lords six years later. And obviously, you use your medical expertise and, of course, knowledge of the Middle East to speak out most. What a, what a platform. It must be a real privilege to 
speak on a platform where your words will be noticed. Alavai. <laughs> An old House of Lords expression. Yes, I do speak. I, I went in ostensibly to speak about health matters uh, from time to time. And I, I used to speak much more than I do now. And now I've, as you've suggested, taken on the idea that I should talk about Israel in the Middle East, which I do too. Whether people take any notice is another matter. Uh, I'm conscious of the fact that I've spoken in so many debates and initiated one or two debates and spoken at question time. I don't know whether anyone ever listens or knows what's going on in the House of Lords. Occasionally we have amendments to bills that get noticed, uh, but we amend all the bills that come through. We do a great job, I think, the House of Lords, but it's not terribly high profile most of the time. I'm a supporter of the House of Lords. Mm. I think it is necessary mm. that we have a group of elders brought around from, and it might be a form of patronage indeed, it, it might be a sort of nod of you've done well, congratulations you, but this sort of broad experience that comes from every quarter of the country mm. I think is sometimes better at scrutiny than uh, oh, the yeah. elected chamber. Well, yes, we go about our business quite quietly. I think that the House of Lords is a wonderful organisation. You can find experts on almost any subject you can wish to make. They will get up and speak. There are some really extremely bright, knowledgeable individuals from all walks of life. There are doctors, of course, but there are many more lawyers. There are quite a few ex-politicians, people from the arts, people from science, from local government, from business from anywhere, and they will get up and speak about subjects that they know something about. So when we have a debate or when we have a bill coming through from the Commons, you'll always get expertise applied to it, and you'll always get bills modified and amended by the experts who get up and speak. So it's a pleasure to be there and to hear them, uh, but you don't get much in the newspapers about them, and uh, I suppose that's probably wise because we are selected as you suggested we're not elected we don't have any democratic legitimacy and that's one of the things we're criticized for and we still have some hereditary peers we have out of the 800 there are 800 of us or slightly less now and of those about 90 are hereditaries still you know you joined the labor party because of who you were as a younger man mm. and it stayed with you in that tribal sense. I was born in the 1960s in suburban Birmingham. Um, I didn't know one Jewish person who voted Labour back then. Thatcher was all the thing. Oh, yeah. And this idea that Labour is the natural home of the Jews, uh, this, this blog from Birmingham, no chance. Don't understand it, but I've come to London and seen that the Hevra from Stepney, that's what they think, so that's what's in The Guardian. You know, I, I find the idea of sort of, you know, family values, aspiration, doing better, all those things are Tory. It's just that perhaps in your day as a 20-something, as opposed to my day, they were a bit more toffish. You know, you weren't allowed to sort of be in the hospital. In my day, you could get on with it. So it's a sort of accident, is it not, of, of kind of when you're born, which party you're involved in. Well, I think social values have always appealed to Jews mm. uh, and the wanting to be kind and do good things for the underprivileged has always been a Jewish character. And uh, that's what socialist principles try to emulate. But, of course, if you go too far, you become communist, you become a Labour Party that we have today. Uh, and it's counterproductive. So, But as far as uh, when I was brought up, uh, conservatism was regarded as being anti-Semitic. Right. That was well before Mrs. Thatcher, of course. Anti-Semitism was quite... In, in the 1940s, 50s, when I was growing up, people didn't hide their anti-Semitism nearly so much as they do now. And you would be very careful about saying you would you kept your head down. Nowadays, Jews don't keep their head down for various reasons. Very good. 
partly because of the existence of the State of Israel, but partly because we've realised at last that keeping your head down doesn't work. And uh, it was regarded as a Tory character to be anti-Semitic, whereas I think Labour were for the people. Yes. And the Jews were the people. And certainly in the, the poor Jews of Manchester, where I was brought up, was a very socialist environment. And the poor Jews of the East End of London, where most of London's Jews came from uh, uh, originally, was very left-wing. Yeah, I, this is a very interesting thing, because, you know, I am very aware of providing something for my community, who I who I represent, who I think I come from and those ideas those ideas of personal freedom and liberty the idea of having your own business you know there is so you know social justice isn't owned by left of center well you know there are some marvelous characters around Alan Sugar self-made entrepreneur if ever there was one was a labor peer yes he came into the labor party and became a Labour peer. He's now left, of course. He left a couple of years ago and became a crossbencher. He's uh, very cross. He's very cross most <laughs> of the time. Uh, but uh, he, he was in the Labour Party, you see. So, and there are quite yeah. a lot of businessmen yeah. in the Labour Party. Uh, there are not many, uh, in the Lords at least, not many workers on the <laughs> Tory side. Most of us are striving for somewhere in the middle, aren't we? Yeah. The middle of the road. Uh, except the Lib Dems under Jenny Tong, perhaps. Quite. She's um, no longer in, in the Lib Dems. She's but she's out. in the House of Lords. Oh, she's there. God. Don't we know it. God, change the locks. <laughs> oh, Don't dear. we know it. She's terrible. Um, mm. So, finally, as you look back on a life where you've been able to do all the things that you've wanted to do. You've really, truly, if I might say, if I could do this, if I could fulfil my potential... In, in, in these ways. Um, it's down to Britain, isn't it? It's a great country, eh? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The opportunities I was given. Free schooling, free university, grants, all that sort of thing to start. And then the opportunities to get the jobs and not coming across anti-Semitism in my particular own bit of life. I think I was lucky. But, uh, you know, it's a great country. I'm very proud to be British, very proud. Johnny Gould's Jewish state is now stepping up to the plate. It's time for us as an audio provider to report Israel around the world with consistency and journalistic integrity. But I need your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. To donate now, go to patreon.com slash Gould or paypal.me slash Jonathan L. Gould. Those addresses again, patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or paypal.me slash Jonathan L. Gould.